Hello everyone, and welcome to the January 20th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The judge presiding in the litigation between the NFL and more than 4,500 retired players has disapproved the proposed $765 million settlement. Federal Judge Anita Brody rejected the proposed settlement because the league and the plaintiff's lawyers had not produced enough evidence to persuade her that the settlement would cover the potential costs for 18,000 retirees over the 65-year life of the agreement. Lawyers for the players responded that economists and actuaries said there will be sufficient money available, but no such analysis has been provided to the judge in support of the plaintiff's motion to approve the settlement. In the absence of additional supporting evidence, Judge Brody had concerns about the fairness, reasonableness, and adequacy of the settlement. The ruling will likely force the plaintiff's lawyer and the NFL to provide documents providing that there will be enough money to pay for the retired player's claims. If the judge remains unconvinced, the league and the lawyers could increase the size of the settlement, change the amount of the payouts, or limit who might be eligible. Nonetheless, her ruling will undoubtedly delay when players may get paid. The proposed settlement was to form the basis for mailings sent to retired players. The players would then have several months to approve the settlement or opt out. None of this means the settlement is ruled out though. Co-lead counsel for the plaintiff said that an analysis from economists, actuaries, and medical experts will prove that the settlement will take care of the players in question. He was confident that the settlement will be approved after the court conducts its due diligence on the fairness and adequacy. Attorney for the players believe this is an extraordinary settlement for the retired NFL players and their families and have received overwhelming support as they have learned about its benefits. But at this point, it seems that Judge Brody is doubting that the $765 million settlement is sufficient. Bottom line, she wants the lawyers to show their work because she's doubting the fairness of the agreement. And now, our fraud report. A new report from the largest national nurses union claims that an epidemic of skyrocketing medical costs has afflicted our country and grown to obscene proportions. National Nurses United is the largest union and professional association of registered nurses with close to 185,000 members in every state. The NNU report claims that medical bills are bloated with waste, redundancy, profiteering, fraud, and outrageous overbilling. In a news release, NNU revealed that 14 hospitals in the United States are charging more than 10 times their cost for treatment. The union claims that for every $100 one of these hospitals spends, the charge in the corresponding bill is nearly $1,200. NNU's key findings note that the top 100 most expensive U.S. hospitals have a charge-to-cost ratio of 765%, percent, 
That's more than double the national average of 331%. They found that despite the enactment of Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act overall hospital charges experienced their largest increase in 16 years. For-profit for hospitals continue to be the worst offenders with average charges of 503% of their costs compared to publicly run hospitals which show more restraint in pricing. The average charge ratios for public hospitals are 235% of their costs. NNU claims that the medical marketplace has provided far too many opportunities for unjustifiable profiteering. The report provides numerous examples of enormous overcharges on simple supplies such as over-the-counter painkillers, gauze, bandages, and even the markers used to prep patients for surgery. That's in addition to the excessive cost of more advanced procedures and the use of advanced medical equipment which are billed at several times their actual cost. NNU claims that these charges have resulted in many hundreds of millions of dollars in overcharges. Cost allocations mix treatment costs with research budgets, cash reserves, and just plain accounting gimmicks. Healthcare in the United States is nearly $3 trillion a year industry, replete with excessive profits for many hospitals, medical supply companies, pharmaceutical companies, labs, and health insurance vendors. The U.S. spends more on healthcare than the next 10 countries combined, most of which cover almost all of their citizens. The United States spends about $8,000 per person per year. The average expenditure of the 33 other developed nations is about $3,000 per person. Harvard's leading expert on healthcare billing, fraud, and abuse conservatively estimates that 10% of all healthcare expenditures in the United States is lost to computerized billing fraud. That's $270 billion a year. Federal prosecutors filed a record number of healthcare fraud cases last year. Overall, prosecutors pursued 377 new federal healthcare fraud cases. That was 3% more than the previous year and 7.7% more than five years ago. Southern Illinois led the nation on a per capita basis in such cases filed with the government pursuing 10.1 prosecutions per 1 million people, which was more than eight times the national average. Last May, 89 people in eight cities, including 14 doctors and nurses, were charged for their alleged roles in separate Medicare scams that collectively amounted to about $223 million in bogus charges. Such fraud is believed to cost the Medicare program between $60 and $90 billion each year. Medicare fraud has morphed into complex schemes over the years, moving from medical equipment and HIV infusion fraud to ambulance scams as crooks try to stay ahead, one step ahead of authorities. The scammers have also grown, grown more sophisticated using recruiters who are paid kickbacks for finding patients while doctors, nurses, and company owners coordinate to appear to deliver medical services that are not delivered. For decades, Medicare has operated under a pay-and-chase system 
paying providers first and investigating suspicious claims later. But now, federal authorities are using a new technology designed to flag suspicious claims before they're paid. A North Hollywood woman pleaded guilty to federal charges for a scheme that submitted nearly $25 million in fraudulent bills to Medicare. 46-year-old Susanna Artsruni, who formerly owned a durable medical equipment company and worked at a number of medical clinics in Los Angeles, pleaded guilty to one count of healthcare fraud and one count of money laundering. Arts Rooney admitted in a plea agreement that she defrauded Medicare in a number of ways. She had physicians assistants at three Los Angeles medical clinics sign prescriptions and orders for medically unnecessary DME and diagnostic tests. She also caused the three clinics to bill Medicare for medically unnecessary services. Arts Rooney fraudulently billed Medicare on behalf of her own DME Supply Company, Mid-Valley Medical Supply in Van Nuys, four medically unnecessary DME based on referrals from one of the three medical clinics. In total, Arts Rooney caused more than $24.8 million in fraudulent claims to be submitted to Medicare. Arts Rooney admitted that she wrote checks to unrelated companies to conceal the nature of the funds as a proceeds of healthcare fraud and used the three corporations to launder these funds. Surprisingly, at the time she was free on bond in another healthcare fraud case. Arts Rooney concealed her activities from a pretrial services officer in a 2008 criminal case and engaged in the fraudulent conduct that led to the most losses in the second case. Arts Rooney faces a statutory maximum sentence of 30 years in federal prison when she's sentenced in April. A second defendant in the case, Erasmus Cote, a physician's assistant who worked in a medical clinic on North Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles, is scheduled to go on trial April 8th. An Orange County attorney has been sent to jail for the use of cappers in his law practice. 60-year-old Walter Martinez of Altaloma pled guilty to 43 felony counts of using cappers to recruit accident victims for his law practice. The California Insurance Commissioner condemned the practice because cappers usually approach accident victims acting as an attorney with no training and give legal advice to people when they're most vulnerable. The Department of Insurance Auto Insurance Fraud Task Force started an investigation after receiving information that Martinez was using cappers. Bank records showed that more than $250,000 in checks were written to the alleged cappers. Two of the three cappers were 34-year-old Israel Gonzalez of Rancho Cucamonga, who pled guilty to eight counts, and 58-year-old Michael Melcher of Covina, who pled guilty to two counts. Martinez was sentenced to one year in jail, followed by three years felony probation and a $91,000 fine. State bar records reflect that Martinez was suspended for one year, which was stayed. He was actually suspended for five months and was ordered to make restitution. Martinez stipulated in the state bar case to 10 acts of misconduct in six matters. 
the Orange County District Attorney conducted an undercover investigation to make it look as if investigators had been in an auto accident. Martinez's employees conducted intake and signed up the investigators as clients without any attorney oversight. The employee negotiated and settled the investigators' claims, received settlement checks from the insurance company. Several months later, the Superior Court assumed jurisdiction of Martinez's practice, which was shut down after the State Bar seized his files and froze his bank accounts. And in regulatory news, Senate Bill 626, which was introduced last year by State Senator Jim Beal, would have rolled back some of the key workers' compensation reforms contained in Senate Bill 863. The California Chamber of Commerce characterized Senate Bill 626 as a job killer bill that severely undercuts the workers' compensation reform deal agreed to by labor unions and employers in 2012. The chamber says that proposed Senate Bill 626 would decimate Senate Bill 863 provisions anticipated to deliver hundreds of millions of dollars of cost savings. Already, important cost-saving reforms under Senate Bill 863 have been placed in doubt as a result of federal litigation from lien claimants. Additionally, Full regulatory implementation of Senate Bill 863 has not been completed, creating uncertainty over whether any of the potential savings will materialize. Under proposed Senate Bill 626, IMR decisions would be fully appealable to the WCAB. This would take medical necessity decisions away from the physicians and put them back in the hands of judges. The projected savings associated with IMR was estimated at around $400 million. The proposed bill would also repeal a provision in SB 863 that eliminates impairment ratings for psychiatric add-ons in some, but not all, cases. It would also repeal a provision in Senate Bill 863 that prohibits a chiropractor from being a primary treating physician once the maximum number of chiropractic treatments has been received. A Senate Labor and Industrial Relations Committee hearing on Senate Bill 626 was set for January 15, 2014. This hearing would have been the first step in obtaining passage this legislative year. However, Senator Beale removed the bill from the committee agenda, fearing that it would not obtain enough votes to successfully win committee approval. Thus, at this point, it would seem that Senate Bill 626 may have suffered an early death in 2014. And in medical news, lumbar disc surgery is one of the most commonly performed operations in the United States. Past studies found that surgery provides faster pain relief and recovery for patients with herniated discs compared to non-surgical treatment. A new eight-year follow-up study in the journal Spine concluded that surgery leads to greater long-term improvement in pain, functioning, and disability compared to non-surgical treatment for patients with herniated discs in the lower spine. The results of the new study add to the evidence for surgical treatment of herniated discs, but it also shows that non-surgical treatment can provide lasting benefits for some patients. 
Do researchers analyze data from the Spine Patient Outcomes Research Trial, or SPORT, one of the largest clinical trials of surgery for spinal disorders? The analysis included eight-year follow-up data on 1,244 patients treated at 13 spine clinics across the United States. Patients in the study with herniated discs in the lumbar spine underwent surgery or non-surgical treatment such as physical therapy, exercise, and pain-relieving medications. Standard measures of pain, physical functioning, and disability were compared between the groups. Consistent with previous data from sport, patients assigned to surgery tended to have better outcomes. On a 100-point pain scale, pain scores averaged about 11 points lower in the surgery group. Measures of physical functioning and disability showed similar differences. Surgery also led to greater improvement in some additional outcomes, including sciatica symptoms, patient satisfaction, and self-rated improvement. While average outcome scores were better with surgery, many patients had significant improvement with non-surgical treatment. But the long-term follow-up results show that surgery was superior to non-operative treatment in relieving symptoms and improving function. Chronic low back pain often goes hand-in-hand -hand with obesity. And a new study at the Yale University School of Medicine hints that changes in the brain's reward systems could be one reason why. The finding follows earlier research that showed people with chronic low back pain often have changes in the areas of the brain that are associated with food and pleasure. The study concludes that patients who suffer from chronic low back pain might be at risk of overeating, especially from the highly palatable energy-dense food. Researchers recruited people with chronic low back pain and used healthy participants to serve as a comparison group. People with chronic back pain were not able to derive as much pleasure from eating as others. Low back pain, in general, is one of the most common reasons for a doctor's visit, both in the office and in the emergency department. The theory has always been that these patients gain weight as a result of a lack of physical activity related to their pain. This study proposes the argument that chronic low back pain affects a patient's relationship with food such that the patient's pleasure from eating is decreased and the patient's ability to know when to stop eating is also decreased, thereby leading to overeating and weight gain. And in other news, forecasters see a third wave of costly asbestos-related claims in the years ahead. And some of the country's largest insurers and consultants appear to be ignoring relevant changes in medical knowledge, demographics, and even social media on asbestos claims. The new study by Assured Research, a New Jersey-based firm that analyzes the property casualty insurance industry, claims that many insurers will be swamped with unexpected reserve charges. Researchers say there is evidence of outdated actuarial models based on 30-year-old epidemiological and demographic data. The old data cannot accurately forecast asbestos-related claims. Some insurers also seem to be ignoring advances in medical knowledge and diagnosis 
and the changing behaviors of consumers and personal injury lawyers. The first wave of claims came from asbestos miners and millers. The second wave from people who handled asbestos regularly, such as plumbers, shipbuilders, and carpenters. The third wave will be dominated by lung cancer claims which are ostensibly lower quality than those of mesothelioma because the cancer was predominantly caused by smoking rather than by asbestos. Recent literature illustrates researchers' rising awareness of the malignant synergies between asbestos and smoking further. Researchers are finding that short but intense exposures to asbestos can lead to asbestos illnesses. Medical evidence is mounting, showing that there is no lower limit below which asbestos fibers cannot cause mesothelioma. Meanwhile, the people most likely to make asbestos claims are living longer, long enough in some cases to be diagnosed with asbestos-related disease. Asbestosis may be easier to diagnose today thanks to high-resolution CT scans and personal injury lawyers are finding it easier than ever to prospect for new claimants since a new recommendation from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommends annual CT scans for all current and former heavy smokers between the ages of 55 and 80, some 10 million people. This third wave will be aided by the growing prevalence of social media sites such as Google and YouTube, which have lowered the costs of prospecting for claimants by lawyers. The National Council on Compensation Insurance is a rating bureau that determines the rules for workers' compensation and calculates the experience mods in 36 states. The experience mod calculation splits injuries into two areas, primary loss and excess loss. The primary loss, which has been at $5,000, is counted 100% in the mod calculation. Everything above that is excess loss and it's discounted depending on the size of the business. This means that the first dollars in the claim are the most important. Beginning in 2013, a substantial change to the experience mod calculation occurred. In 1991, the split point between primary and excess losses was set at $5,000. In 2013, it ballooned to $10,000. And in 2014, it's going up to $13,500. In 2015, it's predicted to exceed $15,000. The reason is that the cost of the employee injuries has dramatically increased. In 1991, the average employee injury cost the insurance company around $3,000. In 2011, that almost approached $9,000. So, if an employer suffered 10 injuries at $5,000, the experience mod would be impacted more than if the employer recorded one $50,000 injury. NCCI has changed the split point in accordance with how the cost of employee injuries has changed, thus making the experience mod more responsive. This will cause a change in the employer's experience mod and not necessarily a good one. Well, that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, 
and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and drop by again next week for more news.